Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's installment of Aftermath Hours, Aftermath's flagship podcast. I'm Nathan Grayson, and I'm joined by a whole host of great people this week to talk about some very depressing shit. Um, one face you may not recognize, that is Lynn Codega. Is that how I say your last name? That's fine. Okay. Codega's good. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, Lynn this week launched a new website dedicated to tabletop gaming called Rascal. We're super, we're super excited to have them. And then I'm also joined by uh, Luke Blunkett. Luke, say hey. Hey, good morning. Hi. And Gita Jackson. What's up? That's who I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are uh, all kind of reeling at the moment, but I think maybe Gita most of all, because uh, some really bad stuff is happening right now in the world of media. Did you know I planned to blog this morning? I was attempting to, I woke up bright and early and I got a bagel and coffee and I was like, mm, what a wonderful day to blog. The last <laughs> thing I've tweeted before I actually looked at the news was I love snails. <laughs> <laughs> and then news started occurring and it did not stop occurring and it's still occurring. So here we are. Yeah. That's the thing about breaking news. Something's always breaking. Something yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Something somewhere is always breaking. breaking in this media industry. That is for sure. So if our listeners are not aware, this morning, uh, one of my former editors at Vice, Janice, posted that um, Vice people had lost access to the ability to download their emails. And they'd also received an anonymous tip that the current owners of Vice were going to delete the website possibly that day. Um, so I spent most of this morning archiving everything I'd written for Vice. I worked there for three years, so this took a very long time for me. Um, and also, this was later confirmed um, in a New York Times report that just came out saying that, not the archival deletion, but the Vice's new owners are going to lay off 900 people. Um, they've already laid off a lot of people, so to me that feels like it's effectively the death knell for Vice as a whole Ridiculous. yeah which is just absolutely terrible and also so callous right like what what is the point of any of this why even have a website if you're just gonna slash and burn it it doesn't make financial sense to me and that um they are still are able to gain ad revenue are, like if they're at the point that the server costs eclipse ad revenue then the financial problems are so bad that that they should have been making radical action years and years ago. Of course, the radical actions they took were giving themselves bonuses in the C-suite that were larger than people's salaries, including my salary after they laid me off. I found out that the members of the C-suite were giving themselves bonuses of the tune of $100,000. Um, and all I'm going to say on the matter, if there's a particular person in the C-suite, and if I ever see her in public, it's it's not my fault what I do. Hey, it's on site. <laughs> It's literally on site. I'm not joking. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's fair. I think if you've worked in journalism for any amount of time, you have at least one C-suite individual where you're just like, yeah, you know, can't be held responsible. I mean, they brought this on themselves. They really did. But, you know, uh, I, I think that one of the things we can do here today is at least talk about viable al alternatives to corporately owned media because it's clear that the entire apparatus is in its death knells. Um, and one of those things, in addition to Aftermath.site, a really cool website that everyone loves, um, is rascal.news. I enjoy that y'all also have a different dot that's not .com. Um, but yeah, you just launched that this week. Uh, you've had what seemed to be a very hectic past few days. 
How's it all going? It's going really well, actually. Uh, we, the three people who founded the site are me, uh, Rowan Zioli, and Chase Carter. And we've all been writing in like tabletop spaces for about like seven, five years. So we're like pretty early on in our career still. Um, but we've never been fully employed. We've always been like kind of uh, disregarded because of the subject matter that we focus on, which you guys well know <laughs> uh, or understand. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just one of those things where I got I got laid off from Geo Media, along with I think twenty three or twenty four other people, and I sort of this was last year, and I sort of looked at the state of media, and I was like there's no way, like, there's no way I'm going to get another job doing anything close to this. So, uh, I used the time that severance gave me and I built rascal.news alongside my two other co-founders. Yeah. And yeah, the past week has been hectic. We launched on Tuesday. We've had like this huge social media response. Um, Someone asked us the other day, it's like, well, what did you expect? Like, what were your what were your goals for for this? And we're just like, we didn't have any. We had zero <laughs> expectations because like we had no idea what was gonna happen. We some other people were were asking, like, oh, what are your numbers? And we're like, we don't, we don't know. And they were like, Oh, well, what do you think you're gonna make in the first month? And we're like, we don't know. People have all these huge assumptions when you start a business about like how like how you're able to predict how things are going to go. I remember before we even announced Aftermath, lots of people coming up to me and being like, so do you, when do you think you're going to be able to hire? It's like, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. We don't know. Right. <laughs> it all depends. Don't know anything. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. you have to do everything. And that includes all the metrics related things that were often given to uh, people that were far away from the journalism desk at other industries. Yeah. A lot of it, a lot of it, we have just sort of decided that like, probably never. Probably never. Um, but maybe eventually. So it's one of those things where we have like, oh, this is a this is a tabletop role playing game term. Are you guys tabletop role players in addition to being video gamers? I'm a role player. I, I played yeah. D D like a couple times. That's pretty much. All my right, I'm not talking experience. to you ever again. <laughs> <laughs> You're dead to me. <laughs> I love That's to fine. make up a little guy and then rotate him in my head. That's my one of my favorite mm -hmm. things to do. So tabletop role playing. Just a little guy. Yeah, look at most little head. guy. <laughs> Our most recent little guy was actually a D and D guy. Her name was Mark. She was a goat woman. Um, oh, beautiful. She's really great. If you imagine like Black Philip, but like big, like yes. imagine yeah. Black Philip, but big with like armor on. Yes. that was Mark. The last D and D character I had was a dark elf named Rihanna. Oh, I love them. <laughs> I name all my characters Rihanna because I'm just like, well, if I'm role playing, I would like to be Rihanna. <laughs> I would like to be Rihanna. Um, yeah. But yeah, so basically people we, people were asking us all these questions and we sort of, in our in our Discord, we have invoked a tabletop role playing game term, which is we put it in a clock, which means <laughs> we'll just deal with it later. That's so funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's like, you know, Blades in the Dark, uh, Monster of the Week, a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games use clocks to determine um, when things get done and like projects and like oncoming threats is a big way to put clocks. So instead of like having a bad guy show up every single time, you just have one clock and you start filling out the clock every session that leads up to the to the big bad evil guy showing mm -hmm. up. 
eventually your clock will advance to the point where you have to deal with some of these things. Yeah. Right. But for now, we've just put everything, <laughs> we've just put everything in a clock. <laughs> that makes yeah. so much sense. There's no IRS in your D&D game, but um, <laughs> there absolutely is. <laughs> Gosh, I've, I've hired a CPA and I'm just Very like, smart. that's my clock. I'm like, yep. that's my clock right there. <laughs> <laughs> he could do the clocks. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I was curious kind of about, you know, the general state of, I guess, journalism and media around tabletop role playing. Um, because like, you know, I've read some of your posts and like the way that it seems is that there's just not really very much of this. I mean, I'm familiar with like stuff on YouTube and in that world, like, you know, uh, shut up and sit down and channels like that. Um, but even then they're more board ga- gamey than they are tabletop um, like, is there really much of this at all? Or are you kind of like doing a sort of maiden voyage or whatever you want to call it? Uh, we're definitely not doing a maiden voyage. Uh, I do want to sort of be really clear that there are outlets out there that are working in this space. There is Bell of Lost Souls. There is N-World. Um, there's Geek Native. A lot of these are like really indie outfits that aren't necessarily like full-time profitable ventures for the people working on it. Um, a lot of it is consumer article focused. It's very much like here's what D&D is doing. Here's like a magic deck. Uh, did you see this Tomb Raider announcement, Tomb Raider t- tabletop announcement? So it's very, uh, yeah, service journalism oriented in a lot of ways. And so we are doing something that's kind of in between uh, the stuff that's already out there that would we would consider like news outlets and then like blogs mm-hmm. um tabletop role-playing games have an incredible history of blogs like literally since the 90s like early 90s people have been blogging about tabletop games yeah there's um tabletop channels on like usenet so back to like the basic foundations of the internet oh. yes usenet forums uh John Peterson, one of like our foremost experts in tabletop role playing games, runs a blog called Playing the World, and he's gotten like multiple book deals because of this blog. And he's done incredible investigations and he does incredible reporting on history. So we have sort of combined our the the kind of legacy of like tabletop role playing game blogs, just like independent people blogging about the games and game design and the the consumer service journalism that's out there. And sort of been like, okay, how do we do something that we feel good about that's sustainable? And that also incorporates the the legacy, the combined legacies of where the yeah, tabletop journalism has happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that I've noticed in the world of in video game land is that as these we've discussed this all, Luke, Nathan, and I will discuss this uh privately. As these sites slash their staff, you lose a lot of history as well. Just a lot mm-hmm. of institutional knowledge. I'm so interested if there's, how are you going to bridge that gap? Or do you have any specific plans you can share? Or is it just more of a, a general mission for the site? A general mission for the site. Um, a lot of it is, you know, we're going to do some like retro reviews is kind of something that we're really interested in because. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> Audio, it's an audio medium. It is is very pumped about this. <laughs> but yeah, we're do, we're gonna do some retro reviews. We're sort of gonna tie in a lot of old games into like contemporary culture. We're going to figure out 
what people were saying back in like 1999 about this game and what are people saying now and how does it relate. Um, and that's kind of the way that we're going to do it. We're also going to, we've been in touch with MIT Press, who's publishing a lot of these like tabletop role-playing game histories and books and essay collections. So hopefully we'll be able to collaborate with them and we'll get like, we're going to do the whole thing. We're going to do excerpts, cover reveals, interviews with authors, the whole thing, darling. It's <laughs> very exciting. Um, so yeah, we really are trying to be as, we're trying to be legacy media, but we're also trying to do it in a very like punk DIY fashion. Um, hopefully it works. I'm really, really, really excited about the review that I'm going to do on this old game called Violets from 1999. Damn. That's such a 1999 name. Yeah, I can't believe Violence only came out in 1999. I thought it had been around for longer. Just didn't have violence before that. It yeah. wasn't allowed. Everyone was just really nice. Well, they did. They just didn't have rules for it. They didn't have a rule oh, sheet. That they oh, of course. That's fair, yeah. Yeah. Bad game design. <laughs> to give you... I, I won't go into it because I could talk for hours about this game. But basically, it's written by this guy, Greg Kostikian, who has been around since the 70s, writing games for games. Like, writing for Dungeons & Dragons, writing for Swords and Sorcery, writing for Tunnels and Trolls. Like, genuinely old-school games writer was there when the dark magic was spoken, <laughs> as one is. And... He was he was doing this for for years. He wrote Paranoia. He wrote the Star Wars RPG. He helped write the Ghostbusters RPG. He like was really like this huge pioneer in game design. And in 1999, um, he wrote this game called Violence, which is a satirical take on the entire role playing game industry. And it's basically the whole premise is: What if you committed Dungeons and Dragons level violence in a suburb? <laughs> wow and it just like it just critiques all of it it's just it's really violent it's really aggressive it's really mean to the reader like it's hard to read because it's just calling you a motherfucker the whole time that's great and there's like one part where it's like oh you can choose your gender and it's like the guys the, you can read it and it's just like you can be whatever gender you want it doesn't matter um but if you're a girl you have to big ticks <laughs> and then and then it goes down and it's just like oh but if you're a woman reading this why are you here get better friends <laughs> don't the man who made you play this game it's That's like, hilarious it's it's like that it's just like such an incisive like fuck you to, to all of it and then there's like one point at the end because they're like stat blocks for like pregnant mothers they're stat blocks for like homeless people right <laughs> Because this this thing is basically saying if you are going to commit Dungeons and Dragons fantasy violence, you are committing violence regardless of the subject of your violent intent. You have to like understand that. And at the very end, there's orcs, <laughs> and it like gives this explanation. And there's no staff block for an orc. That's so funny, and it's just so clever. God. It's so clever. Just playing a prank on the person who bought it. It's very very <laughs> funny. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those, it's one of those games where it's just like you probably like don't want to play it and you probably shouldn't want to play it. But I I firmly believe it's one of those games that like every game designer and everyone who's like a critic of games should read. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, again, I could go on with this for like hours. I love this game. I, I think that's also one of those cases where like writing about any sort of game is important, right? Because there are certain games that yeah, either 
people are not going to want to play or won't get the chance to. Um, but the experience of reading about them or experiencing them via some other medium is really interesting and is really worthwhile. It's really edifying. And so like, you know, we need outlets to do that kind of work. Um, I, I think that oftentimes like, you know, more modern platforms and stuff don't really incentivize that. Like a lot of, you know, YouTube and TikTok content is about like, what's happening now? What's the new thing? What's next? And like having that historical look back, like there's a place for it on those platforms, but you know, it's not as incentivized. Yeah, exactly. And again, like D&D officially came out 1974, violence 1999, now 2024. So it's like violence came out literally at the in-between point, like 25 years after D&D, 25 years like past before now. Wait, yeah, grammatically, I'm yeah, not yeah, sure, yeah. but I got you. <laughs> Yeah, and we're all writers. Every one of us, we write. We need Riley. <laughs> Riley would know the word. Yeah. So, so it's just it's just really. I think that there's now is the time to look back at violence, um, and I think that there's a lot of games like that that we can, again, like you said, hold up, examine, and sort of clarify through a contemporary lens. That you're totally right. Would not get published anywhere else. There is probably very, very, there are probably very, very few places that I could go to. And I'm like, I'm going to write about violence in the voice of violence. Yeah. Mm. And it would be like, wait, what? I'm like, I'm going to call all of our readers motherfuckers. And they're like, <laughs> Linda, are you? It reminds me, Luke always says that the best aftermath blog is the one that we wouldn't even imagine publishing at one of the different places we've worked. And that was it's just a hug. I mean, Egg is a good example of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the greatest thing I've ever written. I did it this week. <laughs> Headline is egg. Subhead is egg. Category is egg. <laughs> it's all egg. <laughs> Amazing. Eggs all the way down. Um, but yeah, I, I have kind of an obligatory question that I feel like maybe you've already been asked as a tabletop person. Um, but I'm curious to know. What did you think of Baldur's Gate 3? Did you did you engage with that? Did you play that? Um, I did not play it. Oh. <laughs> Um, well then to put it another way, what do you think of like the way that kind of the, the tabletop, tabletop sphere or people in it have reacted to that game? Like, do you feel like it's had an impact of like bringing new people in to a medium that previously they, they were like, you know, a little bit iffy on? No. No. <laughs> no. Damn. I mean, okay. I'm so sorry, Gita. Here's my, my two points why okay. Baldur's Gate did nothing Please. to the tabletop sphere. Wow. Oh, this is spicy. One, it's a video game and it does stuff for video games. It's a totally different medium and like just straight up and down. It's a video game. It might use some like D20 mechanics, but it has very, very little to do with how to actually play a tabletop role playing game. End of story. Uh, and number two, Dungeons and Dragons is not in the business of making more tabletop role playing game fans. It is in the business of making <laughs> more Dungeons and Dragons fans. Mm. So speak on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do all the time, actually. I don't speak about it. This is, this is like literally my hobby horse. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, you know, I think it's a great video game. I'm really, really pleased that it got the attention it did. I don't feel like it had an appreciable impact on the tabletop role-playing game scene, except to maybe make people interested in like D&D and then realizing that it's a lot different and worse and better than a video game. Yes, that's exactly what I wrote uh, in my Polygon review, basically. And people, <laughs> I had my locked Twitter account. I had locked my Twitter account ages ago before I posted it. And I 
went to go check on like how the review was doing and I saw people screenshotting it and calling me a moron, obviously. But it's just true. Like a computer is not a DM. It's just not. It's, it's not. And I think I think that like there's and I I never wrote about it because like I didn't play it. I didn't know. Like I and I ultimately I thought like it's I'm happy that it's a video game and it's doing well. But it's a video game. And there is something um a video game has a path. It does not matter how many paths there are. There are open paths and there are restricted paths. And that pathway simply does not exist in tabletop role-playing games. There's no limit. <laughs> There's no limit. There's nothing. Even if you are playing a game um, like Forgery by Banana Jam, um, which is literally a like choose-your-own-adventure tabletop role-playing game, you can still choose not to follow any of those choices and not to follow any of those paths. And you can decide, actually, I want to do it differently and you can do it differently. But if you pop in Baldur's Gate and you're like, actually, I don't want to like kill anyone here. I want to do it differently. You're going to have to like, that doesn't work. Yeah. It's just different. You can try really hard and they do allow a lot of experimentation, but video games have this obsession with simulating infinity when infinity is an impossible thing to simulate, especially the infinity of a human imagination. Yeah. And I don't even think like tabletop role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games as well, like try to simulate that infinity. But I think that there's a lot of, a lot of work that goes into tabletop role-playing games to be like, we don't actually want to simulate infinity. We want to simulate this very specific experience that you can then pour infinitely into mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and create infinite meaning out of and from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just different. I think that, like, it's just different. I'm happy that Baldur's Gate 3 is so successful. Like, good for Larian. Yeah. Happy for them. Great for them. I do also wanted to touch, I want to touch on the thing you said about Dungeon & Dragons, uh, Hasbro, and Wizards of the Coast, essentially. They do not really care, it appears, about the health of the rest of the tabletop role-playing industry. And it feels very clear from the extra material media, you know, experiments they've done recently, especially the movie, that they are more interested in getting people invested specifically in their product and not in role-playing as a whole. Oh, yeah. D&D is a lifestyle brand. Yes, absolutely. It's more a lifestyle (laughs) brand than a gaming brand a lot of the time. You know, I've been around tables where we're just looking at the D&D player books and we're just like, we hate this. (laughs) (laughs) We don't even like these rules. Like, why are we playing it in this way? And it's because of all of the iconography. It's because of... The the streamers that you watch, the voice actors mm-hmm. that role play, it's because you saw a movie with Chris Pine in it. There's so many systems that I just prefer playing in over D and D, man. And yet, you know, every dice that you get comes with every piece of dice you'll need to play Dungeons and Dragons. Right. When mm-hmm. you know it, it's it's assu- the assumed default, and they want to continue to have that share of the the market, essentially. Yeah. Apple cider in chat just said D and D goop for nerds. <laughs> I have a book here. I have Blades in the Dark right here. Mm. And I don't know if you guys have ever played this game. This game fucking slaps. It's really wonderful. It uses dice pools. It's a heist mechanic. Uh, It's just, it's really fantastic. But it's considered like one of the best role-playing games the last decade. And still, like you you talk to like an average D&D player and they don't know it exists. Yeah. And they don't know something like Lancer exists. And they don't know, they certainly don't know Forgery exists. Or even something like Fiasco, which is really like a souped up acting game, is really what we it is. We love Fiasco. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. So, but you you talk to a, an average tabletop role playing game player, and the only game they will know is D and D, and that's not their fault. That's because like D and D, it's market share. It's like market, like gross income in twenty twenty two was $150 million. Not a lot, but like not nothing. Its next biggest competitor was Paizo at $14 million. Yeah. Mm. They want that gap to get even bigger. Yes. So it's just like that. There, There is so, there are so few artistic mediums where that gap is so huge. And it happens in like tech and that's it. And so to have that in like a a very weird niche hobby where so much is built on the designs of third party designers who are doing like 5e content is really remarkable and a little disheartening in a lot of ways. But they have Hasbro money, so yeah, right. and Hasbro can't not have layoffs. It's crazy. Yeah, right. <laughs> How strange. Um, but yeah, I mean, like. You know, is there in your mind a way for any other company or any other like game to sort of achieve a greater degree of ubiquity or to sort of like, you know, break through that threshold at least a little bit? Or is it just sort of going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, D&D way up here, everyone else way down there? I think for the foreseeable future, it's always going to, D&D just has like such a massive hold on the market share. Um, especially in America, that it's just going to keep this division is is not going to get any smaller anytime soon. Uh, but I do think it's worth noting that like it's not the like D and D is not the most popular game in Europe. It's certainly not the most popular game in Japan. Um, it's not the most popular game in China. China has a huge role playing game scene, and it has nothing to do with fantasy. Doesn't have anything to do with Dungeons Dragons. It's like live action role playing murder oh. mystery. It's called. Oh. It's called Jubensha. Oh, yes, right. That's, yes, uh, yes. The, Qu- yeah, Quentin Smith made that video about it recently. Yeah. yeah. That was really cool. It is so cool. It's wonderful. And it's one of those things where it's just like the the grip that D&D has on tabletop role-playing games is very American. And I think that that's, that's probably a, a, a gap that's not going to shift very much. But I think that it is really, really interesting to see what happens outside of D&D. And that's a lot of where my focus is because it's just like, it's more fun. It's more interesting. I like talking to creators who own their work and who are artists and who aren't necessarily doing a like huge design by committee mm-hmm. to produce an edition that's really lackluster and not very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, people in chat are uh, talking about the Adventure Zone and actual play games. Yes. And so I was wondering... What your what your take on that whole scene is, and also like you know they're mentioning that Adventure Zone has in recent times I think experimented a little bit more outside of D anD um, Do you feel like that's a pathway for things to sort of gain larger audiences than maybe they would otherwise under D anD D's dominion? Absolutely. So Taz uh, basically got started in twenty fourteen, actually late twenty thirteen, because uh, Griffin McElroy, who founded Polygon. Um, was a huge Dungeons and Dragons player, and he got an early copy of Five E. They just gave it to him, yeah. <laughs> so because Five E was nothing in 2013, 2014, um, and Four E had gone through this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I will get into the history. I'm sorry. I'm. No, no, it's okay. Uh, this is like all that I think about. <laughs> all that I think about. 
so he got an early copy and he was like, well, we don't really know exactly how to play 5e, but we'll give it a shot. Um, and then Critical Role was originally Pathfinder campaign, and then they went to Geek and Sundry, and then they became a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And I absolutely agree that the combination of the Adventure Zone and Critical Role did so much good for Dungeons and Dragons. Huge amounts of goodwill, huge amounts of people interested, really like helped revolutionize Dungeons and Dragons in like 2014 to 2019 um, in really, really clear and obvious ways. Um, I do really love that the Venture Zone has been experimenting. Um, I see in the chat Amnesty, Chef's Kiss, set in Appalachia, set in like West Virginia, set in like the Mon- Monongahela, like National Forest, genuinely. And it plays Monster of the Week, which is a Power by the Apocalypse game. Genuinely mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, when when Taz made that switch, because Taz went from like D&D to like a couple one shots experimenting with like Fate and Monster of the Week. And when they finally went to Monster of the Week, uh, Evil Hat, which I believe publishes Monster of the Week, maybe I don't remember, but Monster of the Week, whoever published it, like put out a like a notice and was like, "Here is our sales, here's our sales after Taz," and it just goes <laughs> straight up. So yeah, I think it's very very helpful. Like comic books, it's one of those industries where one person's endorsement really can make a huge difference in your sales. I mean, huge. I, I think of something that a lot of people don't understand about any creative pursuit, but especially these incredibly niche ones, is that a lot of the time it's like one person making PDFs in their bedroom and putting them on drive through RPG. And like, it's very rare to get to the point where you can publish a book. Exactly. And that's when we were developing rascal and trying to figure out how can we best serve the community who's literally just like people developing games in their bedroom publishing pdf to drive their rpg one of the ways that we thought of doing it was through our announcement section which i think is something that um differentiates us from a lot of the independent blogs is that we have set up a way for people to become contributors to our site and literally publish press releases and we will not we never have to rewrite a press release again, but we will have it on the site. <laughs> that is actually a dream, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we've, you know, set that up. We've had like a really great um, response from the community. And literally I log on and in the morning I see like seven press releases in the back end just waiting for me to press publish. We love that. One-stop shop. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think it's a kind of a different relationship than what we would have with like video game developers, even independent ones. Um, Cause like, you know, I think that our relationship to a lot of the bigger companies is kind of by necessity, at least a bit oppositional. And they're the ones who often have press releases to send out. So we're always going to be like, well, we don't want to do their heavy lifting for them. But at the same time, you are again in a very different scene where a lot of these people are just like individuals making things like in their bedrooms or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can give you a different relationship, I think, to the creators than what we kind of, again, necessarily need to have to maintain some like journalistic distance. Yeah, we're dealing with largely tech companies, like if we're being super real. Um, and you are dealing with individual artists alongside one massive corporation. <laughs> yes, there's, yes. And I think that that's a huge point of contention is like, at what point are you no longer an independent artist? And I, I know that, like, that's a thing in video games as well. And I think that the delineation, at least for Rascal, is that 
if you are not the person writing, making, and publishing the game who is getting money from that game being bought, then you are not an indie outfit, which is different than like how video games do it. But people really, really want to be indie. People love to be punk until it's time to do punk shit. That's so true. <laughs> yep, that's incredibly true. Ugh. So, so yeah, so that's one of the things when we were creating Rascal, because there is this sort of dearth of outlets covering tabletop role-playing game news, um, because so many of the outlets are focused on D&D, we really wanted to make sure that we were accessible to as many people as possible and accessible to, like, people, like, one-person studios, right? Mm-hmm. And we... We knew that if we were successful, it would be because it would be because the industry itself wants us to be successful. And, you know, I'm so sure that, like, you know, the Buffalo Bills don't give a shit whether or not Defector covers them. Mm-hmm. But there are small independent game studios that we are in direct contact with that, like, will really, really care if Rascal covers their game. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that we want to talk to. Those are the people we want to cover. Those are the people we want to serve as journalists. And those are also like the people that we will report on if something goes wrong. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like that, you know, if there's something wrong and you're going to report on them, like, do you feel like that dynamic muddies the waters at all? Like, do you think that it makes it a little bit harder to be like, hey, now it's time to sort of, uh, come after you in a way, or if not come after you, then at least like be more critical of you than we were being before when we sort of had this more transactional relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's real tough. Um, and it's really, it's very uh, intense. That's one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons that when we, before we hit go, we spent a lot of time trying to review our ethics, our standards and our disclosures. And we have like a massive section on our site dedicated to that specifically because the industry is so small and we're reporting from inside the industry in a lot of ways rather than as critics looking in um so it requires a level of uh ethical distance and like structured ethical distance that we really needed to have laid out even if we weren't able even if like you know we are friendly with a lot of people in the industry that we will maybe at one point have to report critically on or talk critically about the books. And I've like made no uh, qualms about saying exactly what I think about any game ever. (laughs) So there is that. And my hope is that people don't take it personally and people understand that my critical opinion is just one dumbass's opinion writing on the internet. I'm just as dumb as everyone else. I promise. <laughs> that's a that's a rascal news guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> it is like, like if I can do it, anyone can do it. Um, yeah, Dizzy and Chat makes an interesting point. Um, they said, "I feel like TTRPG's relationship to journalism is different from video games because there's so much more visibility into the design process, and that visibility is necessary due to TTRPGs being so social by nature." Would you say that's like an accurate read? I think that's interesting. I think that uh, they are drawing connections to two things that I hadn't previously thought were connected, but might be. Uh, I think it's it could be. I'm not sure. I think that it's also the the difference to journalism is probably in large part because the tabletop role playing game hobby is so niche and so small, and still very DIY and punk and like people. You know, there's 
um, people in Argentina, right, are still passing around the same photocopied copy of the player's handbook that they photocopied in like a university library in 2016. Like that's just an artifact that exists there because there's no way to get those books and they're way too expensive. So people have just been photocopying one copy of the player's handbook over and over and over and over again. Damn, that's wild. I know. It's crazy. We have a we have a report on that coming soon. Ooh. But <laughs> the point but to to the point, it's uh I think that the the visibility is necessary to be social because that is networking is such a big part of discoverability in the hobby. And there's really not a lot of other ways to get the word out there because uh, a lot of the bigger companies that cover tabletop role-playing games like Gizmodo, like Polygon, um, like Dicebreaker have SEO at the front of their mind in a lot of ways. Uh, the ad-based model. Refrain. And SEO, <laughs> SEO with tabletop role-playing games is Dungeons and Dragons and Critical Role. Mm -hmm. That's it. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure based on what you're saying, that, you know, your goal, very similar to ours, is to sort of say, okay, well, we don't want to be forced to, like, pigeonhole ourselves in that way. We don't want to, you know, be enthralled to the SEO gods because, you know, that just, that that has a huge impact on what you produce. That changes what you write, you know, to such an enormous degree as to basically stop you from doing the things you actually want to do or that you actually find interesting, at least oftentimes. Yeah, I mean, it, it will stop you from writing important stories. Mm -hmm. It's not even like stories that you want to write or stories that you think are interesting. It's the stories that are important, but don't necessarily conform to whatever Google thinks is important for your hobby. Right. Ridiculous. Well, yeah, because then you, at least in video games, then you also get into the territory of like people are advertising on your site um, and like you're writing about those things in maybe a way that's not positive and you have all of this stuff. And then also in this day and age, advertisers are just diverse to a lot of things that could be considered controversial or like, you know, uh, reporting on things that involve violence or sexual content or whatever. They're like, oh, we don't want our things appearing next to that. So that changes the calculus too. Yeah, you can't run ads next to an article about the 1999 to to tabletop role-playing game violence. That's, no, you can't. That's, against the, that's rules. the main thing that you can't run them next to now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, wait, they're writing about well, that tabletop game? No. They're writing about that game? Unbelievable. That game is so good. Violence is such a good game. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a whole article... I forget on on like I think the Check Your Ads Institute about how Jezebel made like fifty dollars in one mm -hmm. week from banner ads with paste because of brand safety concerns. Right. Well, yeah. Now they're like doing a subscription service as well, which um to me is kind of interesting. Because at what point do you? I mean, I imagine that Jezebel, a lot of the people there would prefer to just be independent. Um, and like you know, the brand name being worth what it is means they can't just buy it. But it's like. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even a site like that that is still owned by another media company is slowly but surely taking on the exact same structures as sites like Defector and Aftermath and Rascal. Like, you know, I just find it a little bit funny, although mostly grim and sad. Yeah, because I mean that the money that they are going to be making from subscriptions will not outpace good profitable ads. Just won't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about starting an independent site is that you have to accept that you are not ever going to be making the kinds of money that the most highly paid people in media are making. Yeah. Disclaimer. 
<laughs> if anybody who is listening has millions or billions of dollars and wants to give it to us. Just get a dump truck full of cash and just wheel it up to Nathan's apartment. Exactly. And just back it up. They don't even need to wheel it. They can click the link on aftermath.site's front page. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's actually way easier. Yeah, just use our tips. Yeah, jar. which is called tips. Yeah. That that website has no limit. Don't you don't you want to Scrooge McDuck into it though? I mean, maybe once, but I could just withdraw a portion of it for that. I wouldn't have to go through all the trouble of being like, okay, where do I even put this? Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so let's see. I think in terms of questions, that's everything that I had to ask. But are there any other thoughts or feelings that you have to share about either Rascal or the state of journalism? I mean, the state of journalism is just like a dumpster fire that I'm watching float down the Mississippi. And I'm just like, all right. I guess. <laughs> yeah, dog. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> like, that's it. Um, yeah, I think I think we hash and rehash the state of journalism over and over. I think that the fact is that tabletop journalism, much like video game journalism, is in a really precarious situation because niche cultural journalism is never going to be appreciated by legacy media the way that it should be. Yes. People are still, people still are arguing about whether or not video games are art. It's like in 2024. Like two weeks ago, I saw this like wild viral tweet from someone who I have mutuals with that was like, I watched six seconds of a Twitch stream and I deduced that all video games are for uh, men uh, needing to recreate their feelings of war. And I'm like, I'm sitting here playing Persona 3 Reload. All my little guys are going to high school. It's, Yeah. So, you know, we are always going to be having the same argument, same as the old argument. Um, And it's just, I'm really, really excited that I'm going to be able to write about things that I think are important and interesting on Rascal. And I'm just really excited about that. Um, But yeah, I'm happy to answer questions about like tabletop role-playing games. It's literally my whole life. I have (laughs) at least seven role-playing games, like literally like just here. Yeah, like a little fort. On my desk. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one of my favorite little books. I know that we are going into an audio medium with this, so I won't spend too much time on it. This is the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Player's Handbook. Wow. But rendered in watercolor. What? (laughs) That's really cool. An artist uh, who also makes role-playing games, his name is Tim Hutchings, he literally went page by page and recreated the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Manual in watercolor. I love it. I yeah. absolutely it's, love it. That's incredible. That's so and cool. And it's just like this incredible piece of art and it's so useless and I'm just like this is <laughs> I'm like this is what Dungeons and Dragons is about. <laughs> I'm just like this is it. How do you feel about and maybe this is my like particular uh bugbear but how do you feel about the relationship to tabletop play tabletop games and especially some of the more famous examples of performance art like the artist is present? Which is famously when Marina Abramovic, she had this, she's a very famous performance artist. She sat at a table at, I believe the moment, I'm not 100% sure though. She sat at the table and she invited people to sit across from her. And essentially it is a game, right? The game yes. is, how long are you going to sit across from Marina Abramovic? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I believe that, I believe that piece ended when her ex-husband came and sat across from her yeah they both cried they held hands and, and they, cried they held hands and cried and then that's af- after that the performance ended and they hadn't seen each other in like years yeah 
Yeah. Like no contact. It was a harsh breakup. Oh, oh. So like it was a real, it wasn't planned. I really love solo games, right? And I love yes. games okay. that are mostly about playing and challenging your own expectations. I love, okay. I forget the name of this game, but it's a game for yourself. And at the end of the game, you have to destroy all the materials. So you're describing, a, a, you essentially create a society and then you destroy all the materials you use to build the society, which are your paper and your pens and the printout that you have. I am always fascinated by the crossover of these sort of niche hobbies and the fine arts world. Like, where do you think the relationship is between these two things? Yes. So I think it's, I do want to address something in the chat. The Elusive Shift by John Peterson is an incredible book. It not only discusses how TTRPG nerds have the same argument every five years, it discusses how tabletop role-playing games, and specifically Dungeons & Dragons, was never intended to be a role-playing game. Interesting. Ah. Um, and how... And how it, the slow, again, the elusive shift from wargaming, tabletop gaming, role-playing. I'm going to buy this book immediately. It's, again, John Peterson, I think that he his critique, he could use an editor, frankly. Uh, and I think his critique is, is very fandom-oriented. Like, he's very much a fan first, but he's genuinely an incredible historian and author. Anyway, I'm good. I'm done. Um, so, last year... One, a ballet company, the Ballet Collective, did a collaboration with Samantha Lee of Blinking Birch Games, where she wrote a game, and then the choreographer and composer played this game with Samantha, and then they developed a ballet based on this game that they played. That's really cool. Right. So there's so much intersection in between fine art playfulness the idea that like you create the rules that you must break in order to find the ways that you create art yes and <laughs> and so many so many people are sort of like slowly realizing how games are deeply tied to human experience and how playfulness and curiosity and that sort of curiosity is just like deeply tied to the human experience and how games are sort of an extension of that not only tabletop role-playing games but video games as well where it's just like the sort of experimental like i want to try something i want to try and working within that i think fine art is probably never going to get into tabletop role-playing games but i think that individuals and diy punk artists are slowly realizing how these collaborations are very natural and slowly understanding that, like, the the game of Marina Abramov... It's fine. <laughs> the game. <laughs> Marina's game that she played with everyone, where she, like, sits there and she's like, here are the rules. You sit there, I sit here. There are no other rules. Yeah. A game. And you sort of have to, like, think about what transgressions am I having within this container... What experiments can I do within this container? What am I losing by following these rules? What am I gaining by following these rules? How do I push and pull against this? Um, so yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I think that there's a whole there's a whole movement of art games called lyric games. Interesting. That are very experimental. Had kind of their heyday for about like four or five years, from about like 2015 to like 2019. Um, because everyone was like really pushing back against D&D. And one of these games is called Last Cigarette, where you go to, you and your friends get together and you smoke a, your last cigarette. <laughs> and that's the game. 
Oh my God, I've played that game all the time. <laughs> right. And, if, and the rule to this game is that, like, if you smoke another cigarette, you have to text all of the friends that you smoked the last cigarette with and tell them that you lost the game. That's incredible. That's an incredible game. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And then there's like another lyric game that says, I'm just that the title of the game is I'm just trying to pay rent. And it is a game that is priced at $1,000. Now, is that in addition to your rent or is it (laughs) part of paying your rent? It's just, no, no. It's just like the the author has published this game, said, I'm just trying to pay rent. Oh, oh. And it's And the game is whether or not you pay their rent. Yeah. Oh, that's a great game idea. Yeah. Wait, can I steal yeah. that? Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, everybody, again, uh, our tip jar is on the site. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to pay rent. It's a fun game. Just trying to pay rent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so there's an incredible amount of like these really artistic, very, very art, intense games about like, what does it mean to have these rules? What does it mean to play a game? There's another game called uh, like How to Throw a Temper Tantrum. And it takes you through why you would throw a temper tantrum. And at the very end of it is like, have you convinced other people that you are human? <laughs> have you convinced other people that you have feelings and you deserve to be listened to? So it's like a weird sort of Turing test. <laughs> it's it's bonkers. And it was like written by a student. It's just like a, like a kid, basically. So there is like a whole subsection of tabletop role-playing games that aren't just that kind of like immersive element, but like LARPs and fantasies and like Vampire the Masquerade and like, uh, you know, Fiasco that are like very, 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 very focused on how do we break the art apart and put it back together in ways that like are like commenting on the art form itself. Lyric games are incredible. There's one that's called Horse Girl. And you, uh, you basically turn yourself into a horse. Yes. And literally the whole thing is that you love (laughs) horses so much that you want to become one. So you surgically become a horse over the course of like, you know, a week or a month or something. It's Kafka's metahorsesis. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Upset. But yeah, uh, horse girl. It's just and it's it's body horror, right? It's mm-hmm. it's this idea that like you want to be something so bad you are willing to become something you are entirely not to like feel that connection. Yeah. Anyway, lyric games. It's it does the same sort of rhetorical thing that poetry does to you, which is like using something that we know very well, which is language, and then using language, the rules of language itself to show you how to read it, show you how to feel about yes. it. Yes. And there's so many games that do this that are just like so clever with it. There's another game called Lamprey that is a game that you attach to other games that says you use this game by tearing out the pages of other games and by rewriting other games. That rules. It's bonkers. And then, you know, uh, there's games like uh, Forgery, which I've held up before. This is a solo tabletop role-playing game. And it's literally about the kind of like, it's, it's another commentary on like tabletop role playing right now where it's like, how much are you going to give up to be something that you're not? What will you give up for success? And what do you want? What do you want? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing under the membrane here is that I, I personally believe about all forms of play. I believe this about, you know, art, any kind of art. I believe this is about video games. I believe this is about board games, tabletop role playing is that play is how you discover who you are. Yeah. 
You know, yeah. it asks you questions and you have to answer the questions and then you discover who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this is also why like, you know, um, societally, and I think we're improving on this, but for a long time, you know, we accepted that kids played games because they're not fully developed as people yet. And mm-hmm. so it's okay for them to be discovering themselves. And then we have this notion that like, you know, you become an adult and that's it. You're set in stone, you're done. And so you don't need this anymore. You don't need toys. You don't need to play. You've got you've got a job and a mortgage or whatever. Um, I need play more than ever now. That it's- <laughs> right. Because people are never actually finished products. We never yes. stop growing and evolving. We always need to be experimenting and playing and trying new things or else we won't be prepared for the many challenges life throws at us. Yes, an unending barrage. So... This is one of those reasons why I love tabletop role-playing games, because um, in another difference from video games, tabletop role-playing games specifically ask you to embody and act as a player at the table in the moment where you have freedom to be curious and like change your identity. And you can experiment with who you are in a safe container that will allow you to like go into it and then come out of it and just be like, actually, I am non-binary. All of those he hymns I was playing in Dungeons and Dragons have really done something to my brain chemistry. So it's there's so much of that where it's like your identity is so so constantly curious about itself that giving it giving your own consciousness the ability to go into a safe gaming container and come out different is radical. Hell yeah. <laughs> um okay, well. I think maybe we should move on to some other topics because Luke has been sitting in the bottom corner kind of just decaying for a while. Um, Luke is fine. I'm fine. It's, it's the morning for him. You guys, are, you guys are carrying this excellent conversation. I don't, I don't want to disrupt the... We're allowing him to relax. That's what we're doing. We're true, giving Luke true. a break. Thank you. I've got two kids. I need a break sometimes. <laughs> exactly. I appreciate it. <laughs> Luke just came here to chill today. He's not actually going to talk at all. Um, but yeah, anyway, I really want to thank you for coming on the show today. This has been extremely interesting. Um, everybody should support Rascal News. The the Please. URL is just rascal.news. Um, as you can tell, they are doing very fascinating work. So go check them out. Give them some money. This is the pose my one of the guys in my favorite K-pop group does all the time. That's a great pose. For people who can't see it, it's kind of like a little mouse like a, sort of creature. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like a mouse or it's like claws. You got your paws up. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, thank you for joining. Thank you. I'm going to duck out for the uh, for the remainder of this because I don't know a damn thing about video games. I don't know jack from shit about video games. <laughs> I know... I know Prince of Persia is a Metroidvania, and I think the, the Ubisoft workers are trying to unionize. That's like that's literally the extent of my video game knowledge yeah. at this point in time. Those girlies in France, those those French girlies, <laughs> les filles, <laughs> they're going off. <laughs> I I did hear that there's like an Elden Ring, an Elden Scrolls, yes. Elden, Elden Ring. Yeah. Ring. Elder Which is different Scrolls. from Elder Scrolls. Oh, there no. we go. Yeah, it's very confusing. I don't know why they do this to us. <laughs> God, do you remember uh, the the outer worlds and the outer wilds? Wilds, yep. Jesus yeah. Christ. Ooh, comparison we had to make. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know Elder Scrolls from Elden Ring. Um, so I cannot contribute to any conversation about video games whatsoever. No, I have so one sorry. recommendation for you. Is There's this indie okay. game called Minute that I think would appeal to you as a tabletop player. Essentially, you, it's an RPG, 
and after a minute, your character will die. M I N I T. And so you just have to restart it over and over and over again using the knowledge of the game space that you learn from playing it for one minute at a time. Oh, yeah, the game rules. That's fantastic. Um, I I do like video games. Like, I'm I'm playing through Prince of Persia, and I've logged thousands of hours on Legend of Zelda, but... Yeah, these two guys loved... Well, Luke especially really liked Prince of Persia, I remember. Was that right, or is it correct? Yeah, no, that's correct. Great. It is indeed a Metroidvania. That's a very specific piece of knowledge to to possess for 2024. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I do know some terms. Uh, the tagline for Rascal News is alternative, independent, roguelike. Ooh. So. Could also be roguelite, but yeah, either one works. <laughs> okay, we are operating on different spheres of rogues, obviously. But yeah, roguelike, <laughs> you know. The first, the first tabletop role playing game, basically made into a video game, new every time. We love it. But yeah. All right. Thank you for th- thank you for chilling with us. Yeah. Bye, guys. Thank yep. you so much. Bye. This is really lovely. Anytime you want to talk tabletop role playing games, um, we will hit you up expeditiously. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> hit me up. All right, guys. Have a good stream. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. Now it's just the three of us to talk about video games. We can make it if we try. Just yeah. the three of us. So, you, three you of us. You, and I. And also, three letters in the word egg. <laughs> <laughs> um, because this week, Elden Ring finally showed off its hotly anticipated expansion, Shadow of the Erd Tree. And uh, yeah, it opens on a scene of an egg. An egg that many have long speculated is going to be the entry point to the DLC, and they were right. Yes, I do need an egg in this trying time. I need an egg more than ever. (laughs) So I just watched Zilly the Witch's YouTube video uh, doing deep dives on specific things uh, in the trailer. And while it's difficult for me to watch a seven-minute video just with text overlaid, she does not do... uh, She just only does text on video, which is a gimmick that I genuinely really love about her. (laughs) Um, It seems... Like, this is going to be my entire life for the basically entire time that this game comes out. You'll never see me again. <laughs> I'm trying to warn you. Um, How far? Okay, so like I, I played Elden Ring mm-hmm. and I played for like, I don't know, 45, 50 hours, somewhere in there. And then sort of was like, okay, like I, I, I get it. I'm not the kind of person who's going to try to complete this entirely because, you know, a certain amount of difficulty sort of begins to frustrate me too much. Um, but how far did you get? Did you like finish the game? Are you like, you know, looking for your next great challenge? Or is this sort of like... I put it aside because I knew that my hyperfixation would reignite whenever they announced the DLC. And I mm. could feel those tendrils crawling across my brain right now. I was hitting my head against the wall doing the Radon fight. And it was a matter of iteration, right? Like, I, I feel like I'm at the point where I understand the mechanics of Souls games and specifically Elden Ring such that... Any boss is just a numbers game, and it's just how hard do I want to hit my head against the wall? And I was just beginning to find feel frustration with that process. Um, yeah. So I just put it aside because I that was around the time that the first imagery for Shadow of the Earth Tree came out. So I was sort of like, okay, I'm giving myself permission to play other games, check other shit out, wait for the hype for the DLC to spur me onto the finish line. 
Because it's also, it's like, it takes a lot of energy to to do that. It's, um, people compare playing solo games to, to playing an instrument. And I think that's kind of a silly comparison because at the end of learning how to play an instrument, you can play that instrument. And at the end of playing a Souls game, question mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> Man, but, you're ready to play another Souls game. Yeah, it did make me genuinely better at all video games. I would have to say playing Dark Souls. It just it teaches you about uh, timing and control and restraint in a way that I didn't care about before I had to use those skills. But it's also like, you know, I know you've taken like vocal lessons. I don't know if you play any instruments, but mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, also a little bit, right? Like <laughs> I played violin like 14 years ago. Um, but I, I know that the act of practicing, the act of being bad at something until you're good at it is soul sucking. It feels awful and it makes you so tired <laughs> and even just a video game because it requires like using your actual brain and thinking and stuff it it's the same thing for me um but i'm ready to be exhausted by shadow of the earth tree i'm also ready to have my youtube recommendations fill back up with elden ring youtubers rather than k-pop uh compilations but <laughs> that's my problem no i i too am ready for all of the youtube videos that are like Ah, this lore thing or that lore thing. Oh, we we figured all of it out. Um, but yeah, no, I mean the the expansion, like what they showed, looks really cool. And I think that some people were maybe concerned, or not even concerned, but like they thought that after doing a big open space for the main game, they might like sort of revert to a more linear kind of approach for like an expansion. Yeah. Um, but this still looks very open worldy. This still looks like you know you ride around on a horse, you yeah explore an adventure. Um, which is exciting to me. Yeah, the Zilly the Witch video uh, was able to... She's very good at going frame by frame and matching things to previous, like, art assets and art models. She's also, like, uh, like the premier, like, uh, hacker of most of the, the Souls games and very much has a very strong understanding of the file, like, architecture that they use and the name conventions, et cetera, et cetera. So I really trust her, and she... She made a very convincing argument based on the things that we've seen that not only is it going to be a big open world, but that there are going to be different areas in that world similar to the main map. Um, not as big as the main map, obviously, but there's, you know how like you start off in this one region, Limgrave, and then you go through mm -hmm. Raya Lucaria, which is like completely different aesthetic uh, and has completely different architectural styles and completely different enemies. It looks like based on the, the shots of the different locations, that there at least is a small-scale version of that experience. It's not just one land with one theme and one aesthetic. Mm -hmm. It's one land that has multiple different areas with different enemies and different aesthetics also, which right. is, I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> that's yeah, a whole no, hell of a be, lot. It's going to be one central area, and then all the other areas are going to be swamps. <laughs> You saw, <laughs> you saw that Miyazaki quote about poison swamps. Wait, let me let me grab that really quick because it's just so funny. Right. He said something like yeah, he talks about it as like a self-discovery thing, right? Like But it's the way he phrases it is so weird. He's someone asks him, so is there gonna be a poison swamp? And he said, It's funny that you mentioned that. I actually realized while I was doing this that I really like making poison swamps. <laughs> <laughs> It took this long. <laughs> Gosh, I remember the first article I read about Elden Ring uh, post-release was, it takes 15 minutes to get to the first poison swamp. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, wait. 
Um, Luke, did you touch Elden Ring at all? It doesn't really feel like it's your kind of game, but you know, you also play a lot of different kinds of things. So what was your experience with it? Is are we like in a safe enough space that I can talk um, about this? Yes, this like, is a safe swamp. Are you a hater? It's literally just the three of us. Okay. Yeah. I'm an avid, like I hate Souls games. Like I've I keep giving them chances. I keep listening to everybody. I keep fully understanding what everybody else sees in them and like and then I start playing one I'm like fuck I hate this so much this is so real um, get it away from me yeah you know Maddie Myers was just was talking to me about this today Jason Schreier keeps trying to convince her to play games with turn-based combat and she keeps saying every time Jason I've explained to you what I don't like about turn-based combat but I will give it a shot because we we're on a podcast together and every time she's like I hate this and Jason's like why but some people just don't jive with certain mechanics and certain ways of playing people games. people are literally built different like it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's like I, I fully appreciate it. so many other people will find like the repetition and, and perfection of systems and the self-discipline and the training and everything in a Souls game to be like very beneficial and soothing to them. That's cool. I'm very happy for that. I've, I hate it so much. If, if like I hate boss battles, I hate having to be perfect. I hate challenge, like hard dexterity-based yeah. challenges in video games. Like, I'm here to chill. Yeah. I'm here to chill. I just want to sit in my chair and, like, gently manage a kingdom or, like... like <laughs> Absolutely. Move some stuff around gently. I don't want to... I like, want to build a bridge sometimes, you know? I at just... most, at most, I will, like, kick bicycles into some guy's face in Yakuza. But, like, that's... That's it for me. That's my that's my max. Like, Elden, like Souls games go way past that to the point where instead of chilling out and like getting an escape from a game i find myself like getting super stressed out and upset and frustrated and i'm like that's not what i'm here for so i just don't play them. yeah so i'm super happy everybody loved elden ring i played it i gave it more of a chance than i have any other souls game because it had that open world riding a horse thing which meant i could die less the horse can double jump which is yeah. always yeah fun. and the horse could like yeah it was a cool horse you know but um <laughs> Maybe that maybe that bought it another like two hours before I uninstalled it, where a different Souls game might not um, have one but, hour for each yeah. jump. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, it's funny that you mentioned it being like a solitary experience because I also really dislike that about Souls games for a long time. And the thing that changed it for me genuinely was I, after this podcast, I have Gamer Night with the Goyles and Tyler, and what we all got so hyped for Elden Ring that we would all take turns playing it on stream for each other. And like, we would just be there just giving each other props and cheering each other on. I remember the first time I played, I fought a dragon. I was getting frustrated with it to the point that I thought I might give up the game. And then I played it on stream, just on, on our personal Discord stream while Tyler was watching. And we both just sat down and discussed how I could improve my tries on this fight and what what attacks I should look out for. And it took me like 20 minutes to do it, but it taught me more about how to rely on my friends rather than how to be good at this video game. And that is something I really appreciated about the experience. Uh, it's fun playing them, I think, more so when they're new and you're a part of a big community. The fandom mm -hmm. aspect is really, really big for me in this game too. And I know you're also not a fandom guy, so like obviously you're not gonna fuck with it. <laughs> like Especially especially because I the impression I get is a lot of it is not explicit. Like a lot of it is yeah. people trying to read between the lines, and I fucking yeah. hate that so much. Like I mean it's it's all reading between the lines. <laughs> yeah. No, um, no, 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 no. Like yeah. no, thank you. Um, yeah. I mean 
I, I love though the, the the dragon that you're mentioning. Is it that it, that one that's like in the open world area, kind of like mm-hmm. close to where you start, and like the watery yeah. sort of yeah. But they they kind of make you challenge it, you know. Yes, yeah. And I love that part of like the open world design that it, like um, you get led there and you find it pretty early, and you probably get your ass kicked by it, or you run away from it really fast. And then like it ends up being, at least in my experience, it was one of the first like optional bosses that I took down. Yeah. Um, and you sort of realize when you're ready for it. You're like, oh, I can do that now. It was same for me. I I needed more more souls or whatever they're called. Yeah. And I was like, I could just grind the same six dumb misbegottens or I could take down the dragon. Because at yeah. that point, enough people have put stats up on the wikis that I was like able to see, okay, the most efficient way to do this is to kill this dragon. And I really need to level up because I'm getting my ass kicked everywhere. And yeah, I really did almost give up on the game on that optional boss because I just, the camera movement was crazy. The thing that's also really hard about these games is they are janky and they yeah. love being janky and they'll never stop being janky. <laughs> like it's part of the design is the level of jank that you're fighting against in the game. Sometimes I feel about, uh, about them, but um so the camera tracking was wild and I couldn't figure out how to do it. And then eventually over time, I was like, I, I did actually get it. And it felt, it, it felt like when you leave the starting area of um, the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild mm-hmm. and you're just like, oh, right. Oh, there's a whole lot more I can do out here. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, and I mean, I just love the way that the game like sort of guides you into having that experience of, you know, felling this thing you never thought you were going to beat. And that's kind of every fight. You go into it thinking, I'm never going to beat this. This is bullshit. There's no way. And then you do it and you're like, never mind, I'm God. Yeah, and then you exactly. come up to the next thing and you're like, uh, actually, that thing is God and it's stomping on me. And you just rinse, repeat forever. It's the perfect game to play if you have a live-in partner, though. Like, my 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 husband would just stand behind the couch and be like, let's fucking go. <laughs> Every time you saw something cool. <laughs> it's really fun. Um, you talk about the jank, though. And it's interesting to me because, like, though I didn't play this game, it looks a lot less janky than the other ones. Like, Sekudo looks like it's not, like, it, it seems smoother and faster. Yeah. And I look at that and I'm always like, well, why didn't they, like, port that forward into kind of, like, Elden Ring? And I know they do a little bit with, like, um, you know, like the samurai style of play that you can do. Um, but it feels like, you know, Elden Ring is so much more dark, dark Soulsy, which I know people like. But it's like... It seems to me that it's clear that they could unjankify it if they want to, or at least make it a little bit less janky, but they're like, nah. I'm not sure studio conditions are such that they have the option to make it less janky, is what I will say. Is that it's anytime a game comes out and it's the janky as it is, and also is full of detail and lovingly rendered, clearly human design dungeons everywhere, my assumption is that it was made under incredibly fraught conditions. Yeah, that's true. Um, it could also be the engine they use. Yeah. Because that, that definitely factors. Um, someone in chat said Armor Core 6 is a bit less janky. And that's definitely true. And I think that has to do with scale. Uh, Armor Core 6 is a much smaller game and it is not open world. Yeah. I mean, that's the next step, right? When are we getting an open world Armored Core? That would be It's ridiculous. only a matter of time. <laughs> Armored Core was so good. <laughs> I just wanted to make little decals for my mech all the time. Yeah. That seems like a good way to play a game. Um, but yeah, let's see. Is there anything else that anyone has noticed about the Elden Ring expansion before we move on? Wow, there's nothing else in it. It's just an egg and an open plane. Mm-hmm. That's and it. I mean, I get all I get I get all my information from you guys, and so 
There's an egg. Oh, I saw the egg. Yeah. There's a it. big tree and it's different from the other big tree. I was oh. going to say, was there not already a big tree? It's it's different. There Now there's a tree that's attached to the tree that's cracking the other tree open. Mm. And uh, let's see, Isaiah and chat said, dude, kick the guy. Yeah, like Kung Fu kicked cool. a guy. Right. Actually, that that is really appealing to me because I tend yeah. to like, you know, like brawler or martial arts styles in, in action-based games. And so the fact that that is now apparently viable. Yeah, Sifu Mod when. <laughs> Yeah, um, I will definitely probably try out if that is a class or if that is a play style, if that's a weapon-based thing. Who knows? We'll see how it how it goes. Um, let's see. Now it's time to really swerve into different territory because this was a topic that the two of you requested and that I have no real knowledge of. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> to teach you so many things. So tell me about True Detective and what's going on there. Luke, do you want to take the lead up to the current event to just summarize it? Because you wrote about the weird. No, no, no. Thoughts. You, you, you should. Because you haven't seen the show. Okay. Oh, I have. So you should do the setup, and then I'll talk about the show. Okay. I watched the first the first episode last night, and I felt like I felt your spirit calling out to me while I was watching it. Because the entire time <laughs> I was like, "This is just a television show." Like with some good acting in it and like a compelling premise. I don't understand what everyone's so mad about. But yes, True Detective was a, uh, I only think about things in terms of pre-pandemic and post-pandemic now. There was a pre-pandemic HBO show uh, written by a person who was being heralded at the time as an auteur screenwriter, Nick Pizzolatto, and directed by noted sex creep, Kerry Joji Fukunaga. Um, Actually, I think he was cinematographer, but he was uh, heavily involved in the production of the show. And was a sex creep there. And um, it starred Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey and really shocked people, I think, with, in particular, Matthew McConaughey's performance as a weird, like, fucked up nihilist guy. Um, it was so critically acclaimed, I became a hater before I ever, ever saw it because that's the way that I am. And when I did eventually watch it, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought it would. But I do have a lot of issues with it, especially its treatment of race and especially gender. There's a lot of sexual assault on the show. Um, and I I did not really think about it for a long time after because it became increasingly clear that Nick Pizzolatto is a good writer, but also kind of a, a weird guy who... Um, takes a lot of liberties with his inspirations and how much uh, he can use as an homage, rather, and when the line becomes, turns from homage to straight-out plagiarism. Uh, in particular, there's, like, a two lines at the end of um, True Detective, the last episode, where Russ Cole looks up at the stars and he says, you know, you see all the dark there, and you still just be black. You ask me, the light's winning. That is cribbed from an issue of Top Ten by Alan Moore, almost word for word. Um... So there you go. So he directed a not very critically acclaimed, I think, panned, a critically panned uh, second season. And then also wrote a third season that I think is really, really good with Mahershala Ali doing some incredible acting. Um, But for the fourth season, HBO decided to revive the show's brand with a new showrunner named not Issa Rae. <laughs> Can you imagine Issa Rae's <laughs> a Wait, true detective? Cool. That would be really yeah. cool. No, I would actually watch that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be fucking sick. Uh, I'd be in Miami for sure. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, in the notable difference here right away is that True Detective has always had a pair of two male detectives be the leads. But in this season, 
it has two female detectives be the leads. Um, and it also very specifically makes one of them non-white. Um, it takes place in a small, I think, Alaska town that has a large Native population and a lot of Native characters. And, so it wasn't Rachel McAdams. Wasn't Rachel McAdams? Yes. one of the detectives okay. in season two. It was like Nick Pizzolatto's really strange attempt to respond to the criticism. He was like, "I'm going to write a lady," and it was Rachel McAdams, but she's playing a woman who only has anal sex and like vapes all the time. <laughs> and it, <laughs> that was his idea of a cool, like cool detective lady. Oh, and she was also like abused by her dad. So it's like not beating the weird feelings about women in sexual assault allegations. Like, um, notably, the third season doesn't have any of this and is actually an it'll really like it, it is thinking. So it is so much in conversation with the first season that for a while I was a bit skeptical about season four because people kept saying, oh, it ties into the mythology of the first season. Blah, 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 blah. It's like all that comes from Richard Chambers, dog. Like all of the mythology is actually stuff that comes from the public domain. The Yellow King by Richard Chambers is like. So in the public domain, you can grab a like TXT file of it right now if you Google it, you know. So that's it's it's not his mythology; it doesn't belong to him. Um, but over time, you know, Lou wrote this really interesting blog about the critical reception to season four and the differences between the way we talk about this show in particular and the way that we talk about other shows, which I will leave to Luke to to summarize and expound upon a little bit. So, like, if you haven't read it, I wrote a piece maybe two weeks ago about True Detective because it's, like, I've been watching the show week by week and it's finished now, so I guess we can talk about it a bit more openly. But, like, I've watched every other, like, I like True Detective. I've watched every other season. I, I, I'm I someone who found enjoyment in season two, um, which will give you a sort of baseline of where I'm, I'm operating from. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wasn't aware of this culture war slash negative feedback storm kind of situation happening around this show until I'd already started watching it. And so I start watching this show and I'm like, I'm no stranger to this kind of shit. Like I've been doing internet work for a very long time and as idiotic and as awful and as terrible as it is, you can often sort of draw a line between where these people are coming from and the media they're talking about. Like you can see what it is that's pissing them off mm-hmm. in it. And as even if you think they're wrong, you're like, well, I can see the target at least. I was watching this show and I was like, fuck, this is just like a show. It's just a cop show. There's nothing woke. There's nothing like challenging about this really at all. Like this is a show full of mean people set in a weird place and someone's been murdered and they're trying to work it out and everyone hates each other. I'm like, that's true detective. <laughs> this is like, yeah, I don't care about the, the, the kind of limited attempts to link it to season one. Like by and large, this is a true detective show. Yeah. Like, and it's everything the other shows have been and fine. Like at a, the broadest level, you can say there's a lot of women in it. <laughs> yeah. That's what the show's about. Yes. But like, yeah, if you actually watch the show, it's, it's fucking wild. Like the disconnect between the negative feedback to this show versus what the show is. I don't know. Like I have, it's it's not Last Jedi like because that was a bit more polarizing. But like, there's such a disconnect between normal human beings who have watched and thought this show was. You know, it's not anyone's favorite TV show, but it's just a it's a fine TV show. We watched it every week. We enjoyed it. It was like that was a good show. And this like shitstorm that develops to the point where one of the show's original creators is essentially like 
Gator, I don't know the specifics. Was it on his Instagram? It was on his Instagram. He was doing this thing where he was reposting random people's Instagram stories saying, Issa Lopez, that's the name of the showrunner for the fourth season. Issa Lopez has ruined the mythology of True Detective. She has ruined the mythology of True Detective by playing around with the imagery that Nick Pizzolatto uh, created in the first season. And for me, like... The major problem I have with that is that a lot of the things that people herald as being the most important pieces of of aesthetic for that first season comes from other sources. Carcosa is from Richard Chambers. The Yellow King is from Richard Chambers. Um, Almost everything Russ Cole says when he's being a nihilist is either a paraphrase or uh, basically a speech that comes from Thomas Ligotti's The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. And I've read and interacted with all these materials. They are not obscure by any means. Um, I mean, stealing from Alan Moore is like one of the more bold things you can do, honestly. But it it feels very weird for this man to be targeting very specifically a woman of color for ruining his show. Also, when he has an executive producer credit on it and a created by credit on it. Mm -hmm. No one has forgotten his role in this. I don't know why he's so mad. But you've you've spoken now in depth twice about this without and you've you've spoken very gently around the fact that the he's it's not that he's drawing on inspiration from other things like he, they were serious plagiarism allegations yes. about true detective like yes, very yes. credible serious yes. what you google google true detective plagiarism and you, you get everything the you get everything you need to know about yeah. this like these aren't loose allegations this is like holy shit this dude lifted like stuff wholesale from other people for the mythology of True Detective, and then the idea of the show itself—you can't own that. It's yeah. just a fucking cop anthology show. Like it's two detectives trying who hate each other, trying to save, a, so, trying to solve a case. Yeah, you don't own that, man. Like that's that's a genre. Yes, like that's <laughs> the entire mystery so why, genre. Why, yeah, yeah, dude, come on. Yeah, like, no, I was thinking, uh, David and I, my husband David, tried to figure out what are the actual unifying elements of True Detective, and like, let's see if you can think of anything that I missed, Luke. But it's uh, two detectives. They hate each other. Freaky small town. Um, mm-hmm. Could be magic or could be mundane. And uh, ex- one of the, one of them is like one of them is is heavily sexy. Yes. If not, <laughs> yes. If not aesthetically, then just heavily involved in sex. Yes. Stuff yes. For There's, the duration. For some of reason, yes. The show. And then because the first season, I think, had so much issues with race and gender, it's become a recurring theme in the rest of the show to either challenge your expectation or critique the show's portrayal or have a meta commentary on race and gender. Because, I mean, I'm not even kidding. Like, almost every character, female character in the first season was had a background where they were sexually assaulted. It was wild. There were almost, it was a show set entirely in the South and there were almost no black characters. It was wild. So I I can't understand the, especially when you are getting paid for this, right? You don't get an executive producer credit on a show. You don't get money for that. That's not something they just give out. That's a job. Uh, It's kind of a fluffy job, but it is. And you don't get a creator by, series created by credit on a show if you're not getting money for it. Why? Why is he trying to ruin his own bag? <laughs> like, why is he doing <laughs> but why, this? But who? Why? Why is he doing it by retweeting internet, like random internet weirdo? Well, not retweeting, but like yeah. reposting random internet weirdos to do it. Like, man, just you. You know, um, I don't know how rich he is, but like, you've got paid for True Detective multiple times. Like, 
Why you don't need to say anything, let alone, or if you do need to say something, you can say it. You don't need to go to the point of like reposting weirdos who probably have banned or suspended Twitter accounts <laughs> for being like for being massive a weirdos. huge harassers. I feel like yeah. it's made me a little suspicious of people who say they love True Detective season one. Unfortunately, because that's also a show I enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I the scene where they're they're playing. It's not Mud Honey, is it? But it's one of those another classic grunge bands and they're just doing like a whole bunch of like ultraviolence. It's like that's just seared into my brain forever. That's some beautiful imagery, some beautiful acting. Like even if Matthew McConaughey is really just reading Thomas Ligotti like verbatim, he's doing an, a really good performance. It's one of the few performances that I I like him and I, I don't really like him as an actor because I just think he's always doing too much. And also I hated Interstellar to a level that <laughs> it's ruined him for me. But I... I find the cultural reaction to it's as if in retrospect, these people are making up a phenomenon that was not ever wholly true, which was that True Detective season one is part of the television canon and one of the best shows ever made. When in reality, it's a fun mystery story that's shot really well. But plus, it's one of the rare instances of a show that ends terribly and people forgive yes. forgive it for that. Yes. Like there's there's a real tendency for premium shows that if they whiff their ending, like we almost pretend it never happened. Like they they're just not as important as they were yeah. at the time because we're like, oh God. And it kind of ruins our our the legacy of the show in a way. True Detective is like the rarest example of a show that's almost gone backwards from that. It's like people only remember like memes and quotes from that show. Yeah. Because I don't know why, but they they forget that like the show was cool. Like it looked, it was shot really nicely, and it was there was some really memorable performances in it. But like it just doesn't end in a way that is satisfying to anybody. Like when whatever your take on it, like they really whiffed it. And so yeah, this this revisionist history of like it's this True Detective one is is this perfect television show, and every series that's come after it has sucked and whatever. And it's like, well, it's an anthology show. They're all different shows, yeah. like, guys. And this is a different show again. Like, they're all quite – if anything, season three was more derivative of the first season yeah. in its overall structure than this is by lifting a few, like, token law elements, which, you know, mild spoilers, don't don't have a huge impact on how the show ends. Like, if you're if you're having a conniption fit at the imagery of a spiral, I need you to check into a mental health facility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a spiral, dog. Like, it's just trying to keep things aesthetically in line with the previous seasons. Like, yeah. the thing especially that was, I think, really bothered people about the ending of the first season was that they set up the Southern Gothic story and then kind of imply that there's a supernatural element. And then in a way that the other seasons... I haven't seen two, so maybe two does does more stuff. But the way that season three and now this current season I handle that kind of is there is there a mystical element to it? They they handle it very differently, and they're a lot more willing to say upfront, you may not never ever know what's real or not real. Season three, especially because it involves a a, a, a conceit where you are the mystery occurred in like the 90s the mid 90s and then the main character played by Mahershala Ali is recollecting it in his very old age where he has dementia and he is actually beginning to see things so it is a, a narrative conceit that was really weakly considered I think in the first season again I think because he's drawing on chambers which is like very explicitly supernatural 
Um, and you can't, those vibes will just sink in, but I don't think he ever meant to tell a supernatural story. He meant to tell a story about girls being raped and brutally murdered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't love that. So anyway, for, for me, like the whole, the whole point of this conversation for me is I feel like this is the end of the line for this type of discourse and that we've spent 10 or 15 years having to deal with this weird dude's reaction to various pieces of media, mostly because they star or feature prominently women or women in the place in roles or, or, or franchises where it used to be or traditionally were men, blah, blah, blah. This feels like the end point of that where the reach has... Mm -hmm. Like, there is no point where the discourse can reach the reality of the show yes. that we watched. Like, it's just... Today it was announced that Issa Lopez is coming back for the the fifth season. So, obviously... Of course, because yeah. season four, like, got huge ratings because people watched it and were like, this is a good TV show. I'm going to watch it next week. And then the same happened again for six weeks until they had a hit show on their hands. Yep. Surprise. Like, that's how TV works, you know? Yeah. You know, failing company Warner Brothers Discovery reacts to positive metrics. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. You know, it, it just, it really does feel... Especially wild because I, you can't tell me you're mad about Jodie Foster. You can't tell me that. Like, you're lying to me if you're mad about Jodie Foster uh, being the lead actor of this show. Fuck off. Yeah, but don't you know that, uh, don't you know that all of these people discoursing online just want every show to be like, you know, several men sitting in a room talking to one another? Yes. It's got to be all men all the time talking only about men. And listen, I will watch that shit if that's good. I loved Mad Men. <laughs> Mad Men was fantastic. But Mad Men also grappled with the thing that they were doing and tried to untangle it. It is all about why having all men only be in charge is bad. Yeah, I just think it's funny that these people think that they want that when like, in a lot of cases where it's not Mad Men, that also just sounds like a really boring show. Like a bunch of guys talking about guy shit is like, what? What? A, where is the conflict? Where's the intrigue? Where's anything? Mm. It doesn't matter. But that's the disconnect here. It's not like Jodie Foster sitting around talking about girl shit. Yeah. Like she's a mean, she's a mean old cop who lives in Alaska. And all they ever talk about in this show is like, like yeah. brutally it's not girl talk. Yeah, it's brutally yeah, murdered it's, bodies. It's about people yeah. who've been brutally murdered in the snow. It's about how much she hates everyone she works with and leaves it around and how much they don't like her. Um and about how like capitalism sucks. Yeah. And like her difficulties. Yeah. The most it gets is like the difficulties being a parent, but that literally comes up in other seasons of True Detective also. <laughs> yeah. She is the archetype true detective character. Yeah. If you don't like this, you don't like the show. Like, basically. Yeah, so. you know, you tricked yourself yeah. into believing that the show was about specifically Matthew McConaughey, but that happened so long ago. I was still living in Chicago when that season came out. Like, that's over 10 years ago. Yeah, well, that's it. When we, like, I, I when we were going to do this show, I Googled the plagiarism stuff, and I was like, it's a 2014, and I was like, oh. I turned to ash. Like, yeah. my spirit just <laughs> flew out of the window. It's a little ghosty came like, out of still, your mouth, yeah. Like there was, there's been time for three whole other series of this show. Like seventy five percent of this show is not, <laughs> is not season one anymore. We can let it go. We can stop talking about it. Like there's plenty of other aspects of this show to talk about now. And also, so. just like if you like season one that much, just watch it. Just watch it again. You can watch it right now. Yeah, it's an anthology. It's it, they're all self contained shows. You don't need to. It's Final Fantasy. You yeah. don't need to 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 play the last one before you watch the next one. You can only play seven and be perfectly happy. Yeah. You don't need to play eight. Yeah, but what people want is. True Detective Season 1 Rebirth. That's what they want. 
They want it remastered. They want yeah. True Detective Season 1 right. remastered on yeah. the PlayStation 5. Yeah. But I mean, again, this is the thing where, like, what people say they want or think they want and what they actually want are so different. Because in the same way that, like, having a bunch of men sitting in a room talking about guy shit is boring, so is basically a remaster remake with slightly different characters of a thing that you already had. And, like, people people often encounter those things and realize, oh, this is boring to me. I already saw it. Or I can go watch the original better version. Yeah. Um, but yet... They still sit around saying, no, give me more of that, though. I think it's like, you know, a failure of, like, franchise TV and filmmaking yeah. that has convinced everybody that they just want the same thing over and over. But they don't. Nobody I, does. I think a potent example of this is the upcoming new Ghostbusters movie. Do you know a single human being that saw the previous Ghostbusters movie? I did. Wow. You saw it. What I was did. it like? Was there? It was a- offensive. Not not in a like like not in a oh I like Ghostbusters and this is shit all over the canon kind of way. Yeah. It's but like in a <laughs> it just in a shamelessly yeah. like grave robbing a good movie. Yeah. And, and yeah. just like holding up the bones of like, uh is Ghostbusters again. And it's like, oh God, like it's this is just a bad movie that's trading off imagery. Um, it makes you feel dirty when you watch it stuff does. like that. And, and it's one of the worst examples of that. Um, the composer, Dan Golding, wrote a, a post for Kotaku a long time ago where he called it. Um, it was specifically about the the first trailer for Force Awakens, mm-hmm. about how it had the slowed down piano version of the mm-hmm. Star Wars theme. And then every fucking trailer has done that for the last yes. 10 years. He called it weaponized nostalgia. Yes. And I was like, that's that's what that whole movie feels like, where it's just trying to target the kind of person who still buys Ghostbusters merchandise from GameStop in 2024, like has a Lego set of Slimer, has a fucking novelty t-shirt and all this kind of shit. And it's like some guy who's 52 years old, you know, and it's like, you can't, Yeah, that movie is from 1984. Just fucking leave it there. Like you can't bring, the reason Ghostbusters is so cool and was so successful and so beloved is that it's the most 1984 and the most New York in 1984 movie imaginable. You can't keep remaking that movie because it's it's wedded to that yes. time and place. Yes. If you put Ghostbusters in 2021 on a fucking farm in the middle of nowhere, it's not Ghostbusters anymore. It's just using imagery in a bad movie. And that's why I found it offensive. Not Not because I care about Ghostbusters, but just that that's the state of this stuff now, that it's just reach into the archives, pull something out, resuscitate it, yeah. like reanimate it for people, but it's got none of the reason or passion or anything behind it. Like every, and I, I've, I've said this to you guys privately. I may have written it on the site as well. I can't remember, but every cent and every hour spent making that Ghostbusters movie could have been spent making a new movie that's about something else and could have been 2021's version of Ghostbusters. And we'll never know because they spent it on a fucking Ghostbusters movie that no one watched because it was terrible. Like Dakota Johnson, lead actress in the movie Madam Web, literally said this recently while on a press tour for a movie that she clearly despises. That everyone who has holds the, the, purse, the purse strings right now is incredibly scared of anything original and they only want to do things that are proven hits but the proven hit parameters it's like a moving target and no one can figure out what it is here's why because we keep just seeing the same fucking movie over and over and over and people don't want to go to the cinemas for that i'm extremely curious tenet the christopher nolan uh really strange movie that i love because it's so bonkers 
uh, it's returning to cinemas in America um, this weekend. I'm very curious about how much money it's going to make because it is a highly original idea that shows you a lot of things that you've never seen in a movie before. And it never really got a fair shot at a a wide release because of the pandemic. And I think Chris Nolan acted like a baby about it. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about... I know that some of the screenings that I want to go to at my local theater are already completely sold out because people want to see movies that are cool shit in a movie theater. Godzilla Minus One is a great example of this, right? It is a franchise feature, but it is a lovingly made craft-heavy film that was only supposed to be playing in America for a week and then ran until February. You know, like the market is actually showing us that people like things that are original and new. Right. Well, yeah, and uh, to transition to, you know, I think our last main topic for today, because I am curious about this, you know, people are talking about this in relation to video games too. And the like upcoming big video game release is obviously Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Um, reviews of that dropped today and they're very positive. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about the downsides of this franchise approach to things and all of this nostalgia and all of this nostalgia bait. Um, but then we have a case right here where like, for one, Square Enix had an easy layup they could have done, which is just, you know, remake Final Fantasy VII as it was, only give it nicer graphics and like maintain the same story, keep all the beats the same, all of that. Um, instead, they decided to diverge and make kind of a new story from some of common materials. And it seems like they're doing even more of that in the new one. Um, and so I'm curious about just like, you know, the ways that that kind of like approach could manifest more in the future. Cause we're talking about all these movies that are just not really trying that hard in this regard. But then we have things like Final Fantasy VII Remake and the Scott Pilgrim anime. Mm -hmm. um, and let's see, there was another example that I wrote about earlier. But yeah, like, you know, that at least feels like a decent middle ground. Yeah, like the the requel, I think, is a, a term I've heard for this. This is becoming increasingly common in Hollywood as well. Yeah. And it does seem like a good approach because I do think long-term fans, what they're looking for, and the thing I think that sets them off when it comes to something like True Detective, they are looking for being rewarded for being observant, right? Where if you are a long-running fan of Final Fantasy, the next Final Fantasy doesn't have a chocobo in it, you're going to lose your fucking mind. Because you've been told that that is one of the main fundamental elements of, a, of Final Fantasy. I mean, I think the, the season four True Detective references to the first season really only serve to fulfill that part of the assignment, right? Which is like, oh, you remember the spiral? Yeah, it was in the first season. It's a spiral. It's crazy. <laughs> um, right. And I, I do think you see really successful examples of that, like uh, like the Scott Pilgrim anime is a really great example mm -hmm. of that. But there's also, it can become so easy to fall into the weaponized nostalgia trap with that model as well. It's honestly very lucky that Nomura is just such a sick freak. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah, I, I honestly agree. I think that he like, you know, could not do something the regular way to save his life. Like he just sort of patently refuses. I mean, again, look at like Kingdom Hearts. That was yeah. another game that could have been an easy layup. But instead he was like, nope, we need weird Final Fantasy shit and weird Disney shit. We got to make it all just like, you know, to this very particular vision that I have. Yeah, we're going to slowly phase out all the previous Square Enix property stuff and phase in more of my original yeah, fan fiction. Yeah, my just like bonkers, weird, you know, like incomprehensible nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Right. God, it, it is lucky. Like, I find him sometimes so frustrating, but it, he's it's very lucky in the same way that it's lucky that we have Sam Lake, like someone who's willing to show us things that we're familiar with, but also push us past our boundaries. 
And you might get really mad at those boundaries or like Luke, you might just not be able to play Alan Wake at all. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it is at least willing to have someone in the industry that is willing to be divisive and also willing to use millions of dollars to be divisive. Right. Well, and also like, and this was the, I, I published a piece today about kind of like, you know, the New York Times publishing a piece about the original Final Fantasy VII and the Aerith twist and all of that. Um, and one of the main points that I made in that is the Final Fantasy VII Remake, and I'm sure Rebirth, are both attempts at, by way of a game, engaging with the legacy of the game they're a remake of. I think Scott Pilgrim did that too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a really interesting way to use this kind of like medium or, you know, this desire for nostalgia is to say, well, if I'm going to like, you know, have to make this thing again, then how about I make it be about the thing I made previously instead of just like putting it there and saying, here it is again, saying, okay, well, like, what was the thing that I made before about who am I now? What do I want to say this time? And also, what did we all learn from that? Like, where did we all, how, how has society and culture and everything else changed? Um, or how did this thing even impact society and culture? Like, that's really cool to me um, because we're all constantly doing that now. That is the internet, is this constant state of unfolding discussions, um, many of which are a little bit too, like, focused on the present or on like what's coming next because it's all about products. Um, but we're constantly like contextualizing and recontextualizing things. And so it's cool to at least like have some media trying to do that in a very forward facing way too. Yeah, especially to a fan base that can be really hostile. I I think it's a good if you're a creator to poke the bear sometimes. Like uh yeah. I I think I think that's what makes me so interested in season four of True Detective is that Isa Lopez has just completely not responded to any, she's responded once to Pizzolatto's com vocal complaints. And she said, I respect his work and we're just doing something different. Um, and she has not folded at all about her vision. And it's really paid off for her to just be like, yes, I will be confrontational to the section of the audience that is going to resist whatever I do, no matter what, because it's not the same as what they knew. That's very valuable. And you can see in Hollywood where those voices start to get be pushed out because they're also like that, that does not always guarantee box office success. And that is becoming an increasing worry in that particular industry. Right. I also, uh, it just occurred to me, and this is maybe not even an app point of comparison, um, but there's that idea of somebody like, you know, one person in an online argument or discussion, like trying to get the other person's attention and the other person just obliterating them by not even acknowledging it. Yes. It reminds me of like the, the Nicki Minaj stuff that happened oh, recently. my God. Yes. <laughs> Where she's just like, notice me. I'm going to like write all these verses about you. Yeah, I got you. And then it's like, nah, I, I don't even give a shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> she was like... It was very funny to me because Megan did not even say anybody's name. At best, it was a right. subliminal, you know, and then Nicki Minaj for a full on week could not stop talking about her. Meanwhile, Megan Thee Stallion has her Nike collection out. She's fine. Right. She's absolutely fine. <laughs> she had her first number one hit. Like I, I think that like both of these things should serve as examples to everybody else interacting with people who suck online. Just don't acknowledge them. You don't have to. Let them tire themselves out and then walk away. Yeah, it's, it is, I think, a lot about, I think it's Werner Herzog who said this about his frustration sometimes with being interviewed about his own work. He would mm -hmm. say, well, what does this movie say? And Herzog says, well, I find that conversation really frustrating because, to me, the movie is speaking. Mm -hmm. And I think people should think more critically about 
what they're saying without necessarily turning it into a puzzle box or a series of references to catch and just ask, what is this trying to communicate to me? You know, like in our previous conversation with Lynn, what questions is this asking me? How am I answering the questions? Even your dislike can be instructive for you. I'm, for instance, I'm watching uh, Attack on Titan right now. We're in the final season. And there's a lot about that show that's just heinous. That's really, really fucked up. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's like Isayama, he comes around to fascism in an entirely original way. He like reinvents the concept from the ground up. (laughs) It is so wild. But it, it is my dislike, my visceral dislike of those themes allows me to understand this particular show in a way that I think is really interesting. I'm hoping to write long form criticism on the whole show once I've actually finished it as a sort of follow up to why does everyone hate Attack on Titan, the Vice article that I wrote that I mm-hmm. archived to a PDF this morning. Uh, how timely. <laughs> Thanks, Vice, mm, I guess. <laughs> all my homies say fuck Vice. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's see. With all of that said, I think we have a few questions from listeners. Um, also, if anybody in chat wants to pose another question, feel free. But in the meantime, we got some from the Discord. Um, let's see. Uh, from I Once Was a Cat. With the Elden Ring DLC announcement, I started a new playthrough of Elden Ring. My biggest struggle, naming my character. How do you choose a name for your character in a game? All my characters are named Rihanna. That's a great methodology. <laughs> They're all Rihanna. <laughs> if I'm going to have to name a character in a game, it, I'm either going to be playing as myself or as the cooler version of myself, Rihanna. Mm-hmm. There you go. For me, it's always like a challenge. I mean, sometimes I'll do like a weird anagram of my name or something. For years, my my main in World of Warcraft when I was in high school was just like Atenhan. It was so fucking lazy. Um, <laughs> uh, but what I really like nowadays is when games just have name randomizers. Oh, that and so I'll just sit there and hit the button over and over and over until eventually it's like, that's an acceptable name. Yeah. It's not good. I don't love it because no name is, uh, but I'll take it. It's fine. Yeah. I have a default name on my Final Fantasy fourteen character. I have three rules. If it's a sports game, it's me. Like, it's my name. <laughs> if most games, it's my very old, like, gamer tag, which I don't use anymore, but it's Shui, which was the best way I could think of spelling the map fish that comes out of the water in Wind Waker, because that dude used to always, whatever the word it is that he's saying when he comes out of the water, YouTube it, Google it, whatever, it's fine. I just loved that word. It was funny. But Persona, I will like, I can't send a kid to school called Shui. Like, it's not no. right. So I need to find some, I need to find some, if like, he, they're too important to me spiritually to give them that dumb name. So Japanese kid going to a Japanese high school, I tend to like put some amalgamation of like, Japanese footballers' names together so that he has a real, he or she has a real like functional name for school so the kids don't make fun of him because he's probably got enough going on in his life with the demons and the monsters and the shadow realm and yeah. everything else he just needs to yeah. yeah have a nice name. Let's see. Okay, so a quick one from Jay because I, I think this one is very easily answerable. Um, was that Starship, tro- Starship Troopers discourse on Twitter last weekend Helldivers related or is it just a happy coincidence? Definitely Helldivers. That game's a phenomenon. Yeah, definitely. It, um, yeah. It, yeah, 100%. It had an actual measur- measurable impact on people viewing Starship Troopers. Like Which people you are watch. watching it now. Because it's one of the sickest fucking movies of all time. It's really good. Um, all, and hor- horrifically misunderstood. People at the time did not realize that it was very anti-imperialistic. 
Um, apparently the only person that realized, according to him, so take this with a grain of salt because he's a known liar, but Neil Patrick <laughs> Harris said that on set, he was the only person to realize that it was a satire. <laughs> and this was when his, he was like straight out of Doogie Howser. And I think that's wild. Yes. See, I think you so can tell young little guy. Yeah. He was a baby <laughs> with a big ass square head. Uh, you can tell in the performance when uh, at the end of the movie where uh, they he reads the, the bug's mind and he goes, he's scared. It's such a jubilant and like sinister way to describe right. someone else feeling pain. I think he got it in, in a way that's much more intense than the other actors who got it. Verhoeven deliberately cast mostly soap actor opera, uh, actors for the lead roles because he wanted them to play it straight. So I can see why it's confusing. Oh, that's so smart. But... It, it now, especially post 9-11, like it feels like uh, getting knocked in the head repeatedly. Just <laughs> like someone dug up a quote that I'd never seen. I'd, I'd never seen this before. And, you know, it's 2024, so I can't vouch for its 100 percent accuracy. But it was from a 1996 issue of Behind the Scenes or like a Behind the Scenes magazine feature of the movie. And the quote was, I want to make a movie so painfully obvious in its satire that everyone who understands it lives in perpetual psychological torment inflicted on them by all the people who don't. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh I hope God. that is real because that is like the most perfect summary of the entire Starship Troopers, like of its entire existence yeah. in popular culture. Yeah. So I, I, I should probably look up whether that is real, but like it's definitely sounds. I do know that it is real that this is based on a Robert Heinlein book also called Starship Troopers. Heinlein is not necessarily a fascist, but he did have pretty um, strange ideas. He's a libertarian. Heinlein is very much a libertarian. I do. Yeah. Yes. He's, he's um, a libertarian and all of the problems that come with being a libertarian and he wrote the book completely straight. These were just things that he believed. He believed in like uh, joining the military to gain citizenships and citizens being the only one that should be allowed to vote and the nobility of being someone that goes to war, et cetera, et cetera, war as a unifying force. Um, her, uh, Verhoeven, who grew up in uh, during World War II, uh, in during like when fascism was a uh, real and present in in his life. <laughs> Um, he said he tried to read the book and he hated it so much that he just couldn't finish it. He made someone else that was working on the movie with him finish it and then wrote the script from there and was just like, I have to just play everything literally exactly straight because this book is a description of fascism. Um, what I like about Helldivers is that it gets it. Um, that game, like, you know, I, I think that there's still room for people to misinterpret, um, but it's very overt about like, the fact that what you are doing is, you know, very, is like fascism in the name of like democracy. Mm -hmm. And like, it's very like goofy and silly about it. Like the opening cutscene is very over the top and ridiculous and like has somebody, you know, walk in and like talk about why you need to join the military. And it's like, then a, it, it turns out that like you're seeing a flashback of like his family being murdered by bugs in like this idyllic 1950s town. Um, it, it's really goofy and like it's played for laughs, but it's very much like, you know, we're going to spread, quote unquote, managed democracy, whatever that means. It means fascism. Managed democracy. Jesus Christ. <laughs> We've got to secure the galaxy for democracy. Um, and like, you know, notably, you're always the one on the offense. Like it's the map is framed such that it looks like you're defending parts of it, but it's very small parts of it. And like you're always going out into places. Mm. You're never like, you know, you're never in a spot where your people already were. You're always crashing into a planet and ships that literally look like bullets 
Um. <laughs> the fucking rules. I love gameplay and game design as commentary. I, I love yeah. when the parameters of the game itself are forced you to confront really con- uncomfortable things and ideas. Yeah. I think some of the games that Luke and I play that are like about quietly managing something are really good expressions of that. But I also love it when it shows up like in a shooter where they just don't tell you that you're being a fascist, but you are doing fascist things. Yes. I mean, like the game, you know, I, I think that it, does a good job of conveying that this is bad, but also making it funny in a way that, like, I hope sort of defangs fascism. I don't know the long-term impacts of conveying things this way, but um, I enjoy the, like, very much, you know, your characters are incompetent. Mm-hmm. Um, like, your characters are constantly screaming all the time and running away from bugs and, like, shouting stuff like, for democracy, or, like, you know, if you get, like, a kill streak going, they start just, like, laughing maniacally. Mm-hmm. Um because like, you know, from the, the tutorial also conveys this, like you are underprepared, but hyper propagandized. You are just like a dumb idiot who believes in this cause, who's going to go out and die about it and yeah. then be replaced by another disposable dumb idiot seconds later. I'm doing my part. Right. Yeah. The um, like Randy Day Jules in chat says the fact that this friendly fire uh, is awesome. Yeah. It uses it really well because they're just constantly accidentally mowing each other down or dropping things on each other. Um, like it's, it's great. It's a phenomenal game and I can't wait for the servers to actually work because I have given up on playing until they do. Fair enough. I'm about to watch, uh, Manny Myers play it on stream because she wanted to get the rest of us into it. I, I hope that she can find a game to join. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, let's see. So we have one more question and it's, uh, it's quite a weird one. So I don't know if we're going to be able to answer it, but we'll give it our best shot. Um, Quentin Smith says tabletop streaming is to actual play what porn is to sex. What is the ratio of porn watchers to sex havers? And so I think they mean this in the sense of like, you know, stemming from that that analogy, but it could also be just a direct question of what is the ratio of porn watchers to have sex or to sex havers? I be fucking, I'm married. Like, <laughs> listen, you don't want to know the details, but it's happening. Um, no, I think what is interesting about Twitch and its consequences is that it has introduced um watching people do things as a very legitimate hobby in and of itself. Yes. I have some friends in David's, the synagogue he grew up, what I grew up going to in Los Angeles. Uh, I have, we have friends from that synagogue that know about the games I'm playing, but don't play them because they just watch Twitch streams. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely do actually think that's good for the hobby. Um, Not just because in video games, at least you do see people eventually try some things, but also, um, I just think it's I think it's a totally legitimate way to interact with uh, a piece of media is to watch someone react to it and join in on their experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it also just like leads to, you know, a greater lo- level of cultural literacy around games and around the subjects that people interact with in this way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was like a point that I made in my Final Fantasy piece, too, is like because of these things. Um, like younger generations now are more literate about video games than ever. Mm -hmm. And like, I didn't state this part in the piece, but I think it's true. Um, A lot of them, because they've just watched this stuff, they've absorbed it ambiently rather than like playing it directly. Um, And so while I think that we do still have this issue of like discourses repeating themselves and people not being aware of the history of certain scenes, I think that there are elements of that that they do absorb over time just by being inundated in all of it and hearing about it from, you know, like, people who stream stuff or YouTubers or what have you. Um, And so there is some preservation of ideas and of kind of 
broader cultural knowledge through, you know, Twitch streamers and YouTubers and the fact that people who not otherwise play these things or experience them, experience them are experiencing them that way. Yeah. I do think, though, just like watching too much porn, it can lead to an idealized view of what it actually is if you're not actually doing it, right? Like, I, I think actually this is one of the big problems with Overwatch is that the developers listen to streamers uh -huh. way too much mm -hmm. and not the people who casually play the game, which is the majority of their actual audience. Yep. So you see people, especially when you're playing and you have chat open, you see people go absolutely nuts over incredibly minuscule like ways of playing the game that don't matter unless you're Grandmaster because they've heard a streamer talk about it. Yep. Yeah, they're like, oh, the meta works this way right now, so I've got to play this character. And it's like, um, even if that was the case, you are playing them wrong because you do not have the skills to play them right. Yeah, we are starting at a very slow baseline and you are barely clearing it. Like, right. just because you're a normal human being. Yeah. With a job and a life and maybe kids. Yeah. Like, you don't have time to become a master of a video game. Yeah. This has always fascinated me, though, right? Because the, the analogy I've always drawn between those two things is, like, I've I've, I still play football, but I've played a lot of sport in my life and not at a, like, you know, I don't play in the, I never played in the NBA. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't play in the Premier League. I watch a lot of that. And a lot of the commentary and coverage of that shows very advanced tactics sometimes, like formations and ways that the world's best players are playing. And you can sit there and you can appreciate that. When I go and play football with my friends, we don't do that shit <laughs> because there's a very clear awareness that we are not those people. We are just us having fun kicking a ball around. It's fascinating that, like, in one space, the exact same situation plays out like that. But in the video game space, where there should be an even greater focus on recreation and fun, because yeah, what else is there is no Premier League for Overwatch, you know? Right. It's only for, it's a fucking video game. It's supposed to be fun. There's this focus by so many people on the meta and, and the, the minutiae of these systems. And it's like, Overwatch used to be a game where I just played it because I liked the lady with the wings who did the healing stuff because I could do that and it was fun. <laughs> yeah. And then the game started being all about, well, you need X number of tanks and they need to do this and this with this number. And I'm like, I don't want to do this shit. I'm just playing this as a video game for fun with my friends. Yeah. It's not It's not a career. I exclusively play Overwatch with Nico, uh, one of our Apple Cider Witch in the chat, and, and Tyler Cole from Teaser Gamer. And it is just a chat room for us. Like, we just get there and we do, and we voice chat, and then occasionally we get really into it for a match or two. Uh, and then we get a push map, and then we just complain. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but it it is, to me, like, I, I think that Twitch especially, and the way that you are just talking directly to a camera to, in a way that makes the audience members feel so much like they're right next to you. It's like different part of it. Yeah. yeah. It's different from them being a fan of Michael Jordan, right? Like yeah, you can watch so. a lot of like Michael Jordan interviews, but he's never going to stream himself to you playing basketball in his backyard and act like he's your friend. That'd be sick though. He should do that. <laughs> that would be, yeah. yeah. He seems like a shitty friend. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> like you take you gambling. <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a, he's a complete sociopath. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It would be like, yeah, but that's good yeah. content. Yeah. Sociopaths are amazing yeah. content. Yeah. It's absolutely um, true. I mean, just look at all of kick.com. Got him. If you watch the last the last dance, every scene of him like brooding about someone that he like yeah. didn't like in the NBA. So he just And so I took that personally. And so I took that personally. Yeah. yeah. Like that would be the name of his channel. <laughs> and then he would it would just be that kind of content, but every 
Thursday afternoon. No, he'd be molding with XQC like every day. <laughs> like they yeah, would Drew never stop. Said, uh, Drew just said Jordan could be the Tyler one of basketball oh, streaming. God. <laughs> Wait, did you see that Aiden Ross got shot in the foot? <laughs> oh, Aiden Ross. Yeah. Although I I have a whole thought about this, which is that um Aiden Ross purposefully does a bunch of really dumb shit. It's how he commands a lot of his audience. Um, he's gotten in trouble so many times. He's lost huge bets on like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Why would you um, make your brand? Swindled by, <laughs> yes. He got swindled by a famous rapper recently who was like going to appear to, or who agreed to appear on his stream and then left after five minutes for like $2 million. 21 Savage? It was yeah. 21 Savage? Yeah. Oh my God. 21 Savage is one of the coolest motherfuckers alive. Yeah. And like, you know, when that happened, everyone was like, oh man, everyone was like, Aiden Ross got completely owned uh like that sucks for him and it's like no he didn't that made him tons of money got him way more attention and like he that was the best possible outcome like when something really bad happens to him he gets more viewership people love that shit he's a clown that's the point i do love when he experiences personal tragedy but i've made it a point to never click on any of his content because i find him so personally offensive also yeah just like his whole aura it gives me such bad douche chills i can't even look at him he's a piece of shit and like he's also you know like super Again, like fashy and his leanings. Like he he makes no bones about it. He loves Andrew Tate. Uh, uh, anyway, yeah. So he sucks and that all sucks. Another candidate for my ideal form of justice, pushing them down a big well and just leaving them there. Yeah. Like the ring from Samara. You either you either become Samara from the ring, in which case you're doing art therapy, you've learned and you've healed. You know, she was that's what she did down there. Or you die. And I'm not responsible for that. Yep. You were in the you have hit hands. You could have climbed that well. Very true. Get out. I, I think we've done it. I think we've solved the problem with at least like some of the worst content creators. Maybe it was just bad people. Put them all in a well. Just just throw them all. They all need their own well. We don't want them conspiring with each other. Oh, pajamas and chat is right. Like the hole in the Borderlands trailer. Full circle. Yeah, full circle. That's it. All right. Well, we are now obligated to end the podcast because of that. <laughs> um, thank you, everybody who tuned in on Twitch and who is listening at another date and time as ever we will be back next week but until then have a good one